Stephen. Well, good morning, and continue to join everyone who's saying Happy Mother's Day to our mothers. Um, yes, we are deeply grateful. <laughs> I see some children clapping for their mothers already. That's all right, the Moors. <laughs> uh, thanks, Gabby. Um, and as Austin prayed for, um, I mean, we want to celebrate our mothers, and we use that widely in the sense of that we talk about regularly, that we are a family that church is family, and that we are building together with spiritual mothers and fathers, and that is a, a powerful reality, too, uh, that some of you invest in my children. Uh, just yesterday, Hannah Edwards showed up to our kids' football game, and Greta went running into her arms because she is taking the act of spiritually mothering our children seriously, and she's not the only one. There's many of you like that, but then also biological mothers, again, foster mothers, adoptive mothers. Um, and again, all of you, whether you have that role or not, are a spiritual mother as well, uh, that we want to celebrate, we want to honor, we want to recognize. As we jump into today, we have been in a series, and the series is called Foundations, working through our statement of faith, working through the things that we believe, and we started out the series by saying that belief is an indicator, or not even an indicator, a, it will create a natural result in that which you do. Descartes is a philosopher who uh, wanted to, to figure out reality, and so he put himself into an oven uh, where it was black and just said, what is real? What is, if I take away all, you know, senses and everything, what can I understand? Am I real? Is this real? Am I just a, you know, a being in the matrix is essentially what he was kind of asking. And then he eventually comes to the conclusion, well, I'm thinking, and because I'm thinking I exist, and so he came up with the idea of I think, therefore I am. But I would take it into another place and say, I believe, therefore I do. That again, whatever you do, whatever you find yourself just acting in, is naturally formed by what you believe. Which again, is why we said this series matters, why us regularly talking about why we believe what we believe, why we believe from scripture what we believe, and how we regularly form ourselves in these beliefs, not just us in this room, but we have been connecting with the church global, international, and also the church eternal throughout all time that we've held on to these beliefs, these things that are what it is to be a Christian. Because our statement of faith, we've tried to intentionally make it very wide, in which a way that all those who uh, are holding to belief in the scriptures and faith in Christ and Jesus can come together and have differing views on some of the peculiarities or the uh, particulars or the nuanced complexities of scripture and of, of belief. But yet there are these things that we say, but this is so fundamental of what it is to be a Christian that we form each of ourselves in these. And today, we get to talk about ritual. There's been a hankering in our church and culture to talk about ritual, and we hear you. And ritual is a complex relationship that we have with ritual, because in some ways, we all do rituals on the regular. I mean, you have pragmatic rituals, you have your morning rituals, you have a 
regular commute, whether it is uh, now just to your basement office or if it is across town or if it is by bike, whatever it is, you have a way in which you get ready, probably pragmatically because it is the best ordering of ways to do things, it is time maximization, it's most efficient. Possibly it's because when you wake up, you don't wake up well, and so you just need to have a rhythm that you can jumpstart and be halfway into your second cup of coffee before you've actually woken up because you have a ritual. Or we have relational rituals. You have family traditions. Whether with your family growing up or your family that you're a part of now, you create some level of these are things of who we are, rhythms of what we do. Of your missional community. Our missional communities are the groups that meet together at the week. You have missional community rhythms. You have traditions. You have ways that you interact as a group that are peculiar, unique, and relationally binding to your group. You have cultural rhythms. This is where we have holidays. We have... Uh, festivals, the month of May, of course, in Indianapolis is all about the Indianapolis 500, and there are all of these regular signages and these regular events and the regular just smells and experiences that if you have lived in Indianapolis through the course of May, year after year, you repeat, and you have connected through the city and through the experience of being in the city in that. There's of course, religious rituals, what we're doing right now, meeting together on a Sunday gathering is a ritual that the church has done throughout time and history. When we sit, we come up here and do liturgy, we are going through a, a ritual. We are walking through just the acts of lifting our eyes to worship God, then bringing our eyes to confession of our hearts, and then bringing it to an assurance of that we are in uh, Christ and therefore have been redeemed. And then we are taught in Scripture. We open up Scripture to see how does this apply to our lives today. And then eventually we have a giving uh, liturgy where we practice generosity. And then a benediction. We are sent out, out of this place to be the church. And the question that we are asking more and more today is why? Why do we do any of this? Because we live in a time of deconstruction. And actually, I'm more pro uh, just the general idea of deconstruction maybe most pastors i don't know uh but i actually find deconstruction not to be completely unhelpful in fact i think there's a lot of benefit that we find ourselves as we regularly ask what is true what i've been holding on to what's beneficial about my faith about my life about the th th things i do uh the reason i do the things that i do and what is that I've just adopted is either cold or dead or not, you know, necessarily connected to anything. There's a lot that we participate in Western modern Christianity that is, yes, connected to scripture throughout all time in history. And some of it's just purely cultural. And there's some things that just, it doesn't necessarily matter whether you practice that or not. If you follow Jesus, you can do so. And that's the question that we're always asking when we're deconstructing things. What is essential to the integrity of the entire building? And... In that, we obviously have been asking regularly about all of our rituals, all of our traditions. Is this essential? Is this important? Is this necessary? Uh, people have asked that, of course. COVID made us ask about the Sunday gathering. Is it important and necessary to gather together as people on a Sunday to ritualize ourselves and belief, to form ourselves as a community? And while we make a strong argument for it, there's many people who make an argument against it. There's something to be more individually done. And ultimately, this brings us to one of our problems with rituals, is that we either find them going into two categories, which is cold and dead or magical thinking. And so your cold and dead version of ritual is a lot of how you may have described your upbringing in the church. I've heard a lot of people say, like, yeah, we went to church, we went, you know, I, my parents woke me up every week, and we went there, and we just sat in the pews, and we stood up, and we said the prayers, and we sang the songs, and we went home. 
but the second that, you know, traveling soccer or the second that just I had the ability to go or choose to opt in or opt out, I was out because it just felt cold and dead. Or there's on the magical thinking side. If I do these things, then as I've recited a spell or done something, I will experience a result. Uh, probably the most famous uh, versions of these are, are typically found in the Catholic Church, and not to overly beat up on the Catholic Church on this morning, because obviously there's a lot of ways that you could talk about ritual in the Catholic Church, and I think a lot of it is actually really beneficial, as I'm going to talk about today. But there are some things that have just come out historically, because it's the oldest church, and, and uh, the, the oldest church of Christianity. Uh, one of them specifically is uh, the Eucharist, or what we would call communion, the taking of the body and the blood. Uh, and of course, a Catholic tradition would state that uh, that as the priest prays over the bread and the wine, it uh, transubstantiates. It becomes Christ's body and uh, blood. And it's because, what? Jesus didn't say, this is like my body, this is like my blood. Remember this. He said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so the prayer of that is actually transforming it through the spirit into body and blood, which is why the priest has to finish all of the uh, bread or the cup at the end of the uh, communion because you can't waste any, you know, can't pour Christ down the drain. I mean, what would that be? We'd be redeeming sewer systems everywhere. And, uh, and so you have a regular rhythm of the priest saying, this is my body in Latin. And in the Latin phrase, that is hoc est corpus mium. Hoc, this, est is corpus, body, mium, of mind. And he would regularly, the priest would regularly turn around, say hocus corpus meum, and over that you have two traditions that you may be familiar with, and you may know that they came from this or not. One is that you have the term hocus pocus. Hocus pocus comes from this moment of that a priest would turn around, say hocus corpus meum, and all of a sudden, voila, it was body and blood. It had been transformed through a magical word. And so we have the term hocus pocus. The other one that you have is the hokey pokey, because you have in one hand, uh, you have one hand bread, one hand cup. And you put your right hand in, you put your right hand out, you put your right hand in and you shake it all about, you say the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around and that's what it's all about. Mind blowing. <laughs> you have been practicing uh, the Eucharist since you were in preschool. And that is the version of what we put in the category of magical thinking, that this is just, I say these words or I do these things and it does something to transform me in some magical, mysterious way. And we can look at something like that and say, well, that's ridiculous. However, there's a lot of versions of that that you probably find yourself just in maybe lower church traditions like our own, like pray this prayer, say these words. And this is just, you know, I was five, I said this prayer and redemption came and there was no being discipled into the faith. There was no growth in Christ. There was no walking in the spirit. It was just magic words. Repeat after me. Or again, maybe just even the practice of like, I, I don't come in a way to be discipled. I just come like to the Sunday gathering to just kind of receive like this level of like, I'm good. I've checked something off, right? Pick up my, the scriptures and I read to kind of check something off. And there's this level of like magical thinking that comes from that. I just feel like my day goes better, the Spirit blesses me more. And so we often say we want to go for the heart, that we desire as a people and in the church 
that it's not just about cold, dead religion, it's not just about a magical phrase or a magical ritual or routine, but that Jesus desires your heart, which is very true and very right and very good. But here's the reality too. Jesus commands ritual. He commands two of them. And we have to wrestle with the fact that not only does Jesus command ritual, he also, throughout his life, regularly practices it. That you see him not coming to do away with festivals and sacrifices and all sorts of rituals that would have been true of his heritage, but he participates them, he fulfills them, and he brings them into a deeper level of meaning. And so we simply want to say, what are the rituals, what are the ordinances, is the other word that you may use for this, that Jesus has commanded? Why? What is the point of them? Why do we do them? Is it merely just because, well, Jesus said it, and therefore I need to check it off? Or what is he asking us to do as we participate in the two ordinances or rituals that he's commanded throughout time? And simply where we're going. We're going to say, hey, why, uh, which ones are they, and why do they do them? And the first, of course, we have to answer is which ones are they? Because there are all sorts of commands throughout Scripture. There's all sorts of rituals throughout Scripture. We do very few of them. Again, I'm going to hold on to two here for this morning, and then our statement of faith is going to hold on to two. And the church universal and the church throughout history has held on to these same two. Now, again, I just mentioned the Catholicism. They actually uh, will mark seven. They will mark seven sacraments. The seven sacraments of Catholicism are as follows. Uh, They are baptism, confirmation, communion or Eucharist, reconciliation or penance, anointing the sick, holy order or the call to priesthood, and marriage. Uh, And so ultimately in these, these are things that they said, okay, this is what we have been called to do. Um, But we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is our criteria to say, are those what God has called us to do and hold on to or not? Because again, a lot of what we do is cultural. Us meeting together in a building like this, shaped like this one, is a cultural thing that we have done over time. Having a monological teaching is a very cultural practice. Uh, The songs that we sing, the clothes that we wear, a lot of that which we do and what we choose to do is culturally speaking. And, And you see not only that, you see throughout Scripture them commanding things that are cultural that we don't hold to. Uh, The clearest examples are in Corinthians, uh, and actually in several books, Paul's going to command the believers to greet one another with a Christian kiss, uh, which is something that, while we don't do, that actually does, it is alive and well. In fact, I was in Spain. I spent a semester in Spain, and if you spend time in Spain, spend time in South America, most people will greet each other with dos pesos, which is two kisses, as you go up to press cheeks against each other and kiss on both sides, which is that same command working its way out today. Greet each other with a Christian kiss. Or you have head shavings, head coverings uh, in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about, hey, this is when you shave your head. Women, this is how you have your head covered. Uh, Something that we don't do today because it is a cultural moment. And that is something that was very important for them culturally, had specific cultural significance that is not necessarily commanded today. Or you have... Things like uh, keeping kosher, 
not wearing certain fabrics. I mean, if you go to the Old Testament and you start bringing out the old laws, there's all these sorts of things that, I mean, many times this will be the conversation of you say, if you bring any Old Testament commandment, people will say, well, what about keeping kosher or not wearing polyester or, you know, these silly kind of like regular laws? If we don't do those, then is everything in the Old Testament cultural? Because the reality is, is those things were seen to be cultural, that the church does not do them today. In fact, there was even a moment in Acts in which they found their two most cultural held traditions of the people of God, which were keeping kosher, eating kosher, and circumcision, were challenged in the book of Acts. Because there's a moment where Peter has a dream, and in the dream, Peter sees all these non-kosher animals, and the Spirit of God says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, I would never touch anything that God has said unclean. And he said, hey, nothing that I've made is unclean. And then as he wakes from that dream, he's still confused by it. And then he finds at his door a Gentile, a non-Jew. And he realizes that the Spirit is inviting him to bring non-Jews into the family. And then there's this whole conversation. The church gets together and they decide, can the Spirit do this? And they have this conversation about it and they realize, can, I, can they do that? Do they have to now become circumcised? Do they have to keep kosher? And in the spirit of God, they, the church and their wisdom determines no. That these are things that have been commanded throughout time, but are cultural in their application. And therefore, are they a good thing? Absolutely. They, can they point you and train you and form you in your belief and then your actions and inform you and disciple you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But are they essential into what we hold as to what connects us throughout the church in all times and all places? No. And so ultimately, we have three criteria when we ask ourselves, what are the ordinances or rituals that hold together in the church for all times and all places? And the criteria are these. One, it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. That whatever we're doing is something that has been foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Why? Because God is the same God today, yesterday, and forever. And I there's a regular quote that I thought was, you know, very helpful in that sometimes we take the Old Testament God and then there's the New Testament God and the Old Testament God was angry and the New Testament God, you know, like, or it was Jesus all of a sudden comes in with like these really hippie ideas about grace and love and chills out the Old Testament God a little bit. But the reality is, is that God is the same God and that he's been doing the same things. And so it must be foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Secondly, Jesus must clearly command it. There are again, two ordinances that Jesus will clearly say, do these things. Hold on to these things. And then thirdly, we need to see the New Testament church clearly practicing it. That there was the first early church and that they took seriously what Jesus said and you see it working its way out throughout the early church and passed down throughout generations. And again, with that, you see a lot of those fall away when we talk about those seven sacraments, the baptism, confirmation, communion, reconciliation, uh, anointing the sick, holy order, marriage. Um, a lot of those, again, are all good things. But under those criteria, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, clearly commanded by Jesus and pr clearly practiced by the New Testament church, we hold on ultimately to, which are baptism and communion. And in baptism and communion, let's really quick just run them through the ringer. Matthew 28, if you would, flip with me. Again, I want you not just say, these are them, but why are these important? Why is it important that we sit in these, hold in these, 
form ourselves in these. But again, first let's go through the criteria. Matthew 28, verse 19. Ah, let's, go to ver- let's start in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, not converts, but disciples as we just talked about. Not just praying a prayer, but actually being discipled. Uh, disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And so we have in this moment the clear moment where Jesus commands this. So we have Jesus commanding baptism, but we also have clear Old Testament foreshadowing in that there are ritual cleanings, uh, cleansings all over the Old Testament, that there is a regular a rhythm of cleansing oneself ritually. But then you also have stories like Naaman. Naaman in 2 Kings is told by the prophet Elisha, so Naaman is a powerful king, uh, but he's a leper. And so he comes to the prophet Elisha and he says, what can I do to be cleansed of my leprosy? And Elijah says, go cleanse in the Jordan River. And he actually balks at it because he said, like, I have way mightier rivers back where I came from. And so his servant, though, calls him aside and says, hey, if he would have told you to do, like, the most impossible task in the world to get rid of your leprosy, you would have done it. He's just told you to go bathe in the Jordan, so do it. And so he goes. He goes down in the Jordan. He is immersed. He is brought back up, and he's clean. And there's a picture of that in 2 Kings that gets taken forward, so much so that by the time you get to the New Testament, John the Baptist is already actively baptizing people. I mean, he was John the Baptist for a reason, you know? They didn't just give him that nickname, and all of a sudden he's like, I should start this whole tradition based off of this. And so he is John the Baptist, and he's walking people through the rite of baptism. When Jesus comes, it's not that Jesus comes in and says, like, hey, I'm gonna, this is what we're going to do. I'm, you're going to take me to the river. You're going to dip me down, and this is going to become this whole thing that we'll do for all time. It already exists. It's already practiced in the church. But yet Jesus comes, and then with the Old Testament foreshadowing, and a command to do it, he then brings it into a new and more powerful meaning, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. And then we see the New Testament church clearly practicing it all throughout the book of Acts. It's interesting. You will never see someone come to believe in Jesus and them not be baptized in the book of Acts. They are always connected. And there's another conversation for like, you know, if you come here from more of a, I was baptized as a baby and child like that. We don't have time for that. We do have a baptism class and we do have uh, places of talking that through. We understand the nuance and the complexity of that and we stand linked arm in arm with believers who believe differently on that because I don't believe it's a black and white argument. However, one of the reasons that I do hold for a level and we as a church hold for a level of believers baptism is because you do not see the separation of belief and baptism all throughout the New Testament. And so, we have those three uh, checking out on, again, foreshadowing, Jesus commanding, uh, New Testament practicing, and then really quick, let's take uh, communion. So flip over to Luke 22. Luke 22. Uh, Let's start in 14. And when the hour came, so this is Jesus in the last night of his uh, life before resurrection, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So right there we have our Old Testament foreshadowing of what's going to go on. That of course, we could point to many festivals of eating 
but that Jesus is going to specifically say, I have earnestly desired to spend this Passover, the meal that the Jewish people, the most cherished tradition and festival of them coming together and remembering that they were at one point slaves to a wicked taskmaster and were as good as dead. But that God says, hey, I want you to take a lamb to slaughter it and with the blood of the lamb spread it over your doorpost so that when I send out a plague of the death angel taking the firstborn of every household that when it sees the blood of the lamb you will be passed over and I want you to eat a meal but I want you to eat it with your walking stick in your hand and your shoes and your bags packed because I want you to eat it in eager expectation that I am going to be freeing you out of slavery that as the Egyptians are going to awake the next morning you are going to be forced out of here. And then, in the midst of the meal, I mean, it's a large meal. If you've ever sat and done a Seder meal, I've gotten the opportunity to do one where you actually go through all of the readings and all of the, the bitter herbs and the breads, uh, the, the unleavened breads, and then the breaking of the bread and the cup. I mean, it's all in there, and each will be read, and there's significance, and there's connection throughout the, uh, the people and the, and the scriptures of the Old Testament. And then there will be a part of it where they break bread, and they pass around a cup. And this was, again, in the context of a larger meal, an Old Testament foreshadowing that Jesus takes. And so Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup when he had given thanks, and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, and from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks before it, uh, or thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise... The cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus is going to, in this moment, say, Hey, do this. I am not going to take of this meal until the wedding feast of the Lamb, until I have it with you in the new heavens and new earth. But I want you to take of this meal regularly, holding on to the fact that something is going to happen in which you are going to observe my body being broken, my blood being shed, and that being likening to the Passover lamb that was shed, that was or slaughtered and shed so that death would pass over you and you would be brought out of slavery. There's something that I want you to take this every time you get together. And again, in reality, this is often been done in the course of a full meal. We know not only that the New Testament church practiced this, but we know that it was done in a full meal from 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul is telling people, hey, you are coming and gorging yourself on the meal and getting drunk before everyone else shows up, and that's not the way that you should be taking this meal anyway. That's not ex like examining your heart as you take this meal. And so we know that this happened in the context of a larger meal where the more wealthy people, because again, they would meet on a Sunday, which was a work day in the, in the uh, Roman uh, culture. And so if you were wealthy and were not working or could get off work early, they came and were eating and drinking. And then those who were coming to get off work, once they got there, all the food and the drink was gone and they were going hungry. And so there was this level of division rising up. But again, it's in a clear context of a full meal that the New Testament church is practicing regularly. And we have 
in this time and this place boiled things down to taking of the bread and the cup, though I would say there is something rich and fruitful and beneficial about believers, about Christians gathering together and having a meal regularly and having communion being a part of that meal and having it in that full context. Oh, we'll get to that more in a second because I simply want to now, after I've walked them through those points, okay, they check off our three boxes and they are the only two ordinances that we see throughout Scripture that check those three. Jesus clearly commands New Testament church practices, Old Testament foreshadowing. But again, the question is just why? In a world of magical thinking or cold and dead tradition, why do these things? And I think you see it not only in Scripture, but you see it also in our lives. And I want to simply point out these three things. One, I think we are commanded to do these things because there is something about physically embodying spiritual realities. We are a spiritual world. We are, spiritual, or, uh, we are a physical world. We are physical creatures. And there's something about physically embodying those. I, we'll get to more on that in a second. Second, there is something about a communal confession that I'm not just confessing as an individual, but I'm coming together to confess with a community, with a body, with a body of believers around me, confessing the same thing together. And then thirdly, there's, there's something about the fight to remember over the course of our lives. Let me just take each one of those in turn. First, the physical embodiment of spiritual realities. As I already said, we are physical creatures. We live in a physical world. Physicality matters. Bob Goff is the author of Love Does, and uh, in, this, in that book, he writes about, he is a, an attorney, and he says when he has his clients, uh, are, when they are deposed, when they have to be examined uh, in a court of law, he says, he tells them each this, because, you know, the, you come and you sit behind where there's a, something that kind of blocks your lower legs and everything up on the stand, he says, on your knees, place your palms face up. And he says, to, without exception, this makes a person more open, this makes a person more able to think clearly, this makes a person just naturally believe, uh, more authentic and more sincere. And so he said, I, I don't know what it is about it, but he said, I just figured it out. So every time it's like, no one's going to see your hands, put them palm up and it will benefit you on the testimonial stand. Because physicality matters. And we're finding all sorts of science behind this. Uh, Jamie Smith, who uh, writes, uh, you are what you love. I mean, he talks about this, that, that there's something that marketers understand that maybe the church has lost. That marketers are, are best sociologists or best psychologists because they understand that what it is to win our hearts, to attach brands to your affections. I mean, that's why a lot of times you watch commercials and you have no idea what they're advertising until the very end. And then they're going to flash that logo up there at the right time. Why? Because they've made you feel a certain way and then they flashed a logo in front of your face and they've created a neurological pathway of association. That's why certain things are going to be the official sponsor of the Colts or the NFL or of, you know, just, I don't know, mothers or whatever. You know, you can just be the official sponsor of anything. Why? Because you're like, I like this thing and I see this brand and they all of a sudden are aligned. I like mom. I like, you know, Jeep, Cherokee. And all of a sudden they're just like forever connected together, all in together. And there's 
a liturgy. I mean, Jamie Smith talks about this in his book. There is a liturgy of shopping. There's a liturgy all over, but he, says, one, he talks about the liturgy of the academy, the liturgy of the shopping malls, one of my favorites, though. And he says, when you go into a mall, it is designed to have music playing. And it is, I mean, they know what music will be at the right pace to be uplifting, but also to make you walk slowly, to slow your pulse just slightly and to get you to, to linger. They will have smells circulating throughout there that will be positive association of smells. They will have colors that are deeply connected to your psychology that are going to make you feel free and loose and it is all designed to get you in and to teach you to consume. Because there is a liturgy to it. There is a formational reality to physicality. Because you are not just a brain on a stick. You don't just receive information and live according to that information. Physically, physicality influences your brain, it influences your heart, it influences your affection. That's ultimately Jamie Smith's point in You Are What You Love, is that you have the ability to grow your affections through the act of physical, uh, tactile experiences. Uh, he says this, actually, I love this. He says, discipleship, becoming Christ-like, empowered by the Spirit to image God to the world is not magic, nor is it merely intellectual. It's a matter of reforming our loves, re-narrativing our identities, and rehabituating our virtue. And that is centered in the practices of the people of God gathered by the Spirit around Christ's word and the table. Said the, uh, he ends it like this. Love takes practice. Worship is our gymnasium. He is pushing beyond an intellectual understanding of faith, pushing beyond just a purely ethereal, but a physical, tactile, practical worship of God to form you into the person, into the Christ-like disciple that you are. In that, enter the practices of baptism and communion. Romans 6, flip with me there. Actually, do I have this on the screen? Oh, I got this on the screen. You can flip there or you can follow along. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? This is Paul writing to the Romans. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. These people talk to Paul and says, Paul, you're just all about grace. You keep talking about how God has forgiven us in grace. Does that mean we can do whatever we want and that'll just bring more grace and that's a good thing? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For, no, uh, for one who has uh, died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, in your baptism, in the moment of you being submerged in water and then raised again out of the water, is participating in a tactile, physical way in what it is to be buried, to be 
to be dead with Christ and to be raised again in new life. He's saying, I want you to practice this physical reality. Again, another reason that I, it's not black and white, but I hold strongly to a believer's baptism, and we do as a church, because, I mean, first of all, the word baptizo in the Greek is the word to submerge, to immerse. And it is that picture of being submerged, immersed in death, and brought into new life that we say, not only do you do it once yourself, but then you watch others go through it and you see this regular rhythm of that we have all come in as dead in our sin and needing to be raised in the Spirit. And so we practice that and we participate in that. Similarly, communion. 1 Corinthians, I have this one on the screen too. 1 Corinthians 11. This again is that part where Paul's saying, hey, quit uh, showing up early and eating and drinking everything while other people are going hungry. And then he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup uh, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as, uh, as you drink it. Uh, so, sorry, do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Therefore, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's saying that when you take of the body, of the bread, when you take of the cup, of the blood, that you are taking the death and the power of the spirit that both raises Jesus from the dead and transforms you into you. You are taking Jesus' power into you. There's nothing more intimate than what goes in your body through eating. That's why often a communal meal is an exchange of intimacy and it's an exchange of a covenant because we are eating something together. I'm vulnerable and when I take something into my body, it can sustain me, it can kill me. He says, you're going to take something into you that is the power of Jesus moving powerfully in you. It's not magical thinking in that I have this something that all of a sudden has become this powerful object of grace, but it's the reality that the Spirit is in all things and he has filled in this moment you and through that he's taking that bread and that cup and he's empowering you and reminding you of the power that he's given you through the Spirit of God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's something tactile. There's something real. There's something us gathering together and doing this regularly. That is the physical reality or physically embodying spiritual realities. i got to move quickly. Then there's also a communal confession. There's something powerful about the act of confession. And we talked a couple weeks ago that the word spirit in the Old Testament is the same word for breath, for what you're going to speak, your intention and your will is the idea of you are committing your spirit, which is why when you get married, you are going to stand before a priest or a pastor or you're going to stand before a group of witnesses and you are going to declare publicly with your breath, with your spirit, with your intention, with your will, I will do this. I will make myself one to this person. And there's something powerful about the communal confession of that. There's likewise something powerful about baptism. To be baptized in the early church was quite possibly a death sentence. 
Even today, it's really easy to get people around the globe to pray a prayer of I believe in Jesus because I believe in a lot of gods. I can add one more to the roster. But to stand and publicly declare, I am immersing myself in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I am identifying with his identity, the unity and diversity of the Father, Son, and Spirit loving one another. I am now immersing myself in that. And I am arising to a new identity, not just in this Trinitarian God, but in the people and the brothers and sisters that I have around me. It is an extremely communal thing. Also communion. Again, as we already said, there's something powerfully intimate about sharing a meal together, about eating together with one another. And there's something about coming around the table, which again, throughout history, much more of what you thought of when you thought of the word church was not someone on a stage and then instruments behind them, but was around a table, eating and taking of the bread and the cup and coming together with a psalm, a hymn, a spiritual word, a prophecy, an exhortation, an encouragement with one another and building up the body into full maturity. That there is something, yes, there's nothing wrong with what we do culturally here. It's just what our culture is. But there's something powerful about the intimacy of communally coming together and holding on to the bread and the cup and just practicing taking that which has raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit that it was within him, into you. I mean, it's what, it's what the whole debate about does this actually become body and blood or does this simultaneously be bread and body and cup and blood is about. It was about that believers were just trying to put into words that which they experienced. There was something powerful about us coming together and taking this together and affirming these things and forming our lives and becoming more Christ-like and becoming those who are putting sin away and putting righteousness on and slowly but surely walking and bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth. He said there's something powerful about that and it's, it's like this is the body of Jesus. This is his blood. There's something powerful going on here. And I would argue that in the spiritual realm, there is. You are connected to something about the body and the blood of Jesus. Is it transubstantiate in that moment? Does it consubstantiate? If you don't know what those words are, don't worry. No. But in the spiritual realm, are you connected to the body and the blood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Paul seems to think so. It is a powerful moment. Because lastly, this is all as we talked about actually a few weeks ago on our first Sunday here. It is a fight to remember this. That all of Christianity can be summed into the regularly fight to remember and not forget. That if you go through, I, I did a few weeks ago when we were talking about the stones of remembrance. I mean, every single book of the Old Testament, oh, but every single book of the New Testament, you're going to constantly find the command to remember. Do not forget this. Hold on to this. Say this. Do this. Put this on your eyelids. Put this on your doors. Remember this. Why? Because life is just happens to be hard enough that it tends to beat the belief out of you. 
that whether it's this season or it was last season or it's next season, a lot of you find yourselves in times where it's like, yes, I'm full of life and belief and there's times where I am clinging to it. Or maybe I'm not even clinging to it. I'm just simply going through rhythms, hoping that maybe I will have my heart reignited in belief. Can I encourage your heart this morning? Jesus was very aware that that is a human experience. In fact, he took these two ordinances and he said, do this. Keep showing up. Keep taking the bread and the cup. Keep entering into baptism. Keep participating in the immersion into my reality, into my identity, into my power. Watch others go through it as well. Build a community of people that are holding together in a communal confession so that when you find yourself weak, somebody else who finds themselves strong can come after you and hold you towards that which we are trying to regularly form ourselves back to belief. Yes, you find yourself regularly falling into patterns of sin. Yes, you find yourselves falling into patterns of unbelief. Yes, your brain chemistry gets out of whack sometimes. Yes, sometimes you just look around and you say, like, this is such a painful existence. How can there be a good and loving God? And then you come into the body of believers who are practicing the regular rituals of physically connecting ourselves to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus through baptism and communion. And sometimes that's just what it looks like. We talked about in 1 John, that's what it looks like to abide. Not to just feel all magically warm and fuzzy all the time, but to, to show up and to make yourself known in the light of community when you don't. And holding on to these things, participating in these things, knowing that as they form you, as they form your belief, they form your actions. And they actually make you over time into Jesus. Is it magical? No, it's very intentional. Is it cold and dead? Some days. But not for everyone in the moment at the same time. So now I get to transition to communion and the easiest transition I've ever had in a sermon. <laughs> This is what we believe. We take this each week because of what I've just said. And the way that we take it is if you come down here, we'll have a station where you will tear a piece of the bread, dip in the cup. We do that intentionally. Uh, we didn't throughout COVID, but we, now we brought it back. Why? Because we believe in tearing off of the same piece of the common loaf, dipping in the same cup. Uh, is it hygienic? No. Um, is it one body and intimate, yes. Um, however, because we are in the time we are, we have also recognized that we do make concessions for the moment of there is an individual communion to take around you uh, if you find yourself that that would be most comfortable for you. Um, is there anything less spiritual about it? No, absolutely not. Uh, no, absolutely not. But I would even say, man, I, there's some times with your missional community with other believers, gather together, have a whole meal and break the body, break the bread and, break, and drink the cup. And actually, possibly, in a little bit, we're talking about a couple different people having baptism services here in the uh, next little bit. Who's going to be the first one to be baptized in the new building? Ooh, trivia fact. Um, <laughs> if that incentivizes anyone. Um, but regardless, uh, let's come. Let's take this as a community. Let's take the grace and the power that has raised Jesus from the dead and is sanctifying and glorifying you and I into this image of Jesus.
into our bodies. Let's pray. Father God, I pray, Lord, that we would um, not take these things without reflection, but in this moment, having reflection in our hearts to, um, to recognize what we're doing here. We're not just glibly um, taking snacks in church, Lord. We're not just glibly uh, taking something um, that means nothing or that is going to do something magical, but rather we are participating in your death and your resurrection. We are participating in the spirit that raised you from the dead and is raising us. Um, Lord, whether we find ourselves in deep, passionate, intimate belief in that, or if we find ourselves desperately hoping that your spirit will realive in that in us, I pray that we both would come feeling welcome. We both would come participating in these things, that day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, and millennia of millennia have connected your church throughout time and history. And we've gotten together, we've broken the bread, we've drank the cup, we've prayed the prayers, we sang the song, and we've formed ourselves towards those who are your disciples. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.